Hello and welcome to the second Right for Your Life podcast, which is technically the third, and I'm going to stop doing that from now on. Um, Write for Your Life is a really good site about writing. It features articles, video tutorials, and of course, this very podcast. My name's Ian Broom, and I'm the editor of Write for Your Life, though in my head I use the word curator because it makes me sound important. I'm joined again by Manuela Boyle, poet, copywriter, communications buff, and regular contributor to Write for Your Life. Hello, Manuela. Hello, Ian. In this episode, uh, we're going to be talking about spoken word nights and uh, our experience of them, the benefits of going to them and performing at them, and um, even setting up your own spoken word night too. Um, And then in part two of the podcast, I'll be talking to Donna Sorensen, who's from the Irish Writers' Centre, and she'll be telling us uh, her story, really, about um, funding or the lack of uh, funding for them and then in part three it's going to be in the news which is uh, we're going to cover um, psychological tips for getting in the writing zone and uh, so that's that let's crack on so Manuela um, what's a spoken word night to you what is what's your uh, very quick or relatively quick definition of a spoken word night it's getting up on stage and uh, reading your little heart out really um, yeah, I think I think that's my quick quick definition. Anything that involves uh, performing and reading out uh, your creative work, really. And usually in front of an audience, I guess as well. And it's uh, although I have performed in some empty rooms, Ian, <laughs> haven't we all? <laughs> but um, there's a distinction between uh, sometimes a spoken word night is called an open mic night. We often refer to uh, refer to words aloud, which was the spoken word night that me, you, and some friends uh, ran a couple of years ago as an open mic night, and I think that sort of implies um, musicians and that kind of thing, which we did have, uh, but although it was primarily a spoken word event. So when I talk about spoken word nights, I think uh, I mean uh, performing fiction or poetry yes. or or, um, or even sort of non-fiction works. So that's what we're talking about. And um, very briefly, should we just explain our... I've already said that we did Words Aloud together, um, our experience of spoken word nights, if you'd like to go first. Yeah, well, I think with Words Aloud, which we ran um, for two years, as you say, which I think we, f- we finished... When did we finish up? We started in November 2006, and we very delightfully finished in... When I say delightfully, I mean because it was a nice bit of symmetry... Yes. ...in November 2008. So, thank you. Um, dates aren't my strong point. But um, basically, it's a great example of pub talk made flesh, uh, words allowed. Um, we had an idea as a group of writers um, and friends from the workshop in the pub, as you do. We had many ideas... That one made it through. So we chatted to the owner of a local bar um, um, who had sort of music nights on, said, what do you think of this? Let's do a spoken word night. And really it took off from there. Um, a lot of the power behind it was obviously our sort of friend and colleague, Justine Gober, who um, really sort of drove it all through, you know, with all having that sort of marketing experience that we had. It meant that we could just put the materials out, get it publicised, and it really just grew from there. We didn't know what what we'd, if, what we'd bitten, did we? Or if, if we were tapping into something special. But I think the response to the initial night, the launch night, and how it grew from there took us by surprise. It did. I mean, and we started off by performing ourselves. I mean, obviously the other people performed as well. But you know, just to make sure, that thankfully, we, <laughs> make sure that make sure that there were enough performers on the bill, we performed ourselves. Did you have any other per, uh, spoken word experience before before then? Uh, yes, I did have some spoken word experience. Um, I 
first of all, in New York, age 19, terrified. Um, Sounds cool, though, it, it? It was very cool. Um, I'm not saying it was awful by any means. Um, I met some interesting characters on the Lower East Side when I was out there one summer with some friends who persuaded me to sort of get a bit involved with spoken word scene in New York. Because at the time I was like writing poetry and things. So I did go to a poetry bar on the Lower East Side called Deanna's, which I hope is there, still there now, and I'll check when I go back in June. Um, and it was actually performing a piece of work with a jazz quartet, which was quite scary. Yikes. My, I've not had anything quite so exotic as that, but um, uh, I've, uh, my, my experience uh, has been with my own, with my fiction, um, with short stories, and then um, more latterly my novel. And so I've, I've did quite a bit of spoken word before uh, we set up Words Aloud. Where did you do it? Um, well, I'm glad you asked, um, <laughs> because it makes me sound less vain. I performed at the Hay Literary Festival. <laughs> of course, that's but, right. But I did that with, as part of my, uh, uh, with my masters. I was published in the, in the university's magazine, um, sort of literary magazine. Matter was uh, that? It was, yeah. yeah. And um, so I, I went there into Oxford Literary Festival and have also helped um, um, Catherine White, who's a children's author, and soon to be relative, direct relative, uh, or can't direct, you can't be direct in that way, can you? Forget all that. Um, she's very a future f- mother in law. You're all right, you've gone and said it. Um, um, who's a children's author, so I performed with her at the Edinburgh Festival. Did with you? A, with I didn't a, know that. I had a crocodile on my hand. <laughs> Did you? What, a crocodile puppet, I take it? Yes, a crocodile puppet. Because. <laughs> Her, her book's called Here Comes the Crocodile. It's for, for young children. I had no idea that you'd done that. A little plug there. I shall get extra helpings next time I'm down in Somerset. Um, so that's our uh, experience. So we had quite a bit of experience before we set up yeah. uh, Words Aloud. And I, I think that um, there are huge benefits to performing at Spoken Word Nights. Um, and a lot of people don't, or they don't even know about them. Even just attending a spoken word night can really help your own writing. And if you pluck up the courage, and it is a case of plucking up courage a lot of the yeah. time, uh, to perform at one, then um, the more's the better. You get a lot out of it. Any, anything that, uh, that you feel that you've got out of a spoken word night in the past, or that you can see other people getting out of them when they're performing? Well, I, th- I mean, I think... To be honest, I think a lot of people... This is going to sound really hackney, but I do think a lot of people find their voice, find their voice at our spoken, words night, spoken word night, words aloud, as they will do up and down the country. Sometimes, and I think particularly in the US, mm, performing poetry is almost like a genre of its own. Um, and I think you probably have to... At a lot of the, some of the spoken word nights I've seen in the States... It's a real talent. It's kind of akin to sort of performance with some rapping in there, with jamming. There's much more of a sort of culture of spoken word over in the States. In Britain, um, I think we are a little bit more diffident and awkward about performing in stage. Not all the time, but I think there is. it's not quite the same thing. And that's a shame because um, your confidence improves... You get feedback from people. You get an immediate sense of reward where you've stood up on stage and you've performed your work and you've you've enjoyed it most of the time. We had very few fluff-ups, to be honest, didn't we, at, at Words Alive. No memorable fluff-ups. And even if you have a fluff-up, it doesn't matter. Um, so you get that. You kind of connect with other people. Plus, and I think it's something we touched on in the last podcast, 
um, you have a reason to write. You have a regular deadline that you have to make because you want to keep performing because you enjoy it a lot of the time. So, as you say, there's just loads you can get out of um, performing at a, a spoken word night or even attending one regularly. Yeah, and I think I, I agree with absolutely all of that. And I think the, the one other thing that, that I would add is is that you get to hear your work in a completely different uh, completely different way. Yeah. There's been, uh, I mean, the opening chapter of my of my novel, which I thought was absolutely done and dusted, wouldn't need to touch it ever again. And I'd read it to myself in an empty space, as you described earlier, and um, in a and darkened room. Absolutely, and I thought it was it was finished. And then I performed it, and uh, I, I I don't know what it was. It wasn't like anyone reacted badly. It was just I, as I was reading, I sort of tripped up over a certain part of the sentence, and I thought, oh, crikey, that needs changing. Something mm-hmm. needs to, something needs to happen there. So I think performing your work in front of other people forces you to practice it a lot before you do it before you perform uh, before you perform it actually to people um, and you see little kinks in your writing that you perhaps wouldn't have noticed if you just read it sort of in your head spoken word is editing I like it exactly so well, we've talked we've talked already about uh, words loud and, and yeah. setting up a spoken word night and um uh, or that we set up a spoken word night, and a lot of other people might want to do the same thing. I know that, and I, one of the great things about doing words aloud was it, it seemed to um, inspire people. I mean, it was quite. It was without wanting to toot our own horn. Um, it was relatively successful, wasn't it? It was based in in, in our city, in Sheffield, in in the UK, and um, we used to get over a hundred people. Yeah. Pr- you know, regularly, more or less. Often thirty readers a night, and yeah. kind of you know there was a lot of. A lot of backroom bribery and all sorts going on, buying drinks, you know, um, <laughs> deals made in, in darkened places in the bar to try and get someone um, up on the stage. Not really, but, you know, it was, it was, always, it was always really packed, the billing, so... But and, and um, I mean, we were lucky that we, we all worked together so we could communicate regularly and, and, and we could share ideas quite easily. So um, getting the marketing out there was really quite, quite you know, uh, an important part of it. But, I've, you know, since we've stopped doing it and, you know, I really thought about why it was sort of almost accidentally so successful. Yes. And one of the things that, well, a couple of things that I think are really uh, important if you, if you want to set up your own spoken word night, is to try and create a, a sense of community. It's not just a case of, um, you know, then it's going to take place every month and, you know, turn up and then that's it. It's about creating a community and actually, uh, as, as the organiser, as the person who stands on the stage and, and you know, is the, the face or the faces, as we were, um, of the night, it's about being prepared to engage with people. So if someone, you know, at the end, when, when the spoken word's done at 10 o'clock and there's another hour before closing time, make sure that at least one of you stays for that hour so that you can chat to people and just get to know them and just help create that community, introduce people to each other, that kind of thing. And a few whiskey sours on the side, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and then the other thing, and I don't know if you'll agree, I shall ask you in a second, is to have a bit of uh, humility. I said that earlier that we, yeah. um, that we performed um, our own work um, initially, which we did, but I think as soon as we realised that it wasn't a problem getting getting people to read yeah. we all took a, a step back we didn't yeah, we, we didn't did. we didn't use the, the, the night as uh, our own vehicle for getting our own work out there we truly wanted to uh, make it something for the people that came just we yeah. just couldn't believe that so many people would want mm. to come to our night mm. and know, come so, regularly I and think come as regularly, well. yeah and it was important to make it about them and it's very difficult to do that if you've organized an event it's very difficult to take a step back from it and let other people have some kind of ownership Especially when sometimes that you know there's with any event or with any creative practice or creative event or a scene, 
there are favoured egos. Let's you know, let's make no mistake there. Um, there are occasionally favoured egos who who kind of want to dominate things, but we were fortunate that the sort of chemistry in our in our group of organisers was such that it was on that equal footing. That was in the spirit of the night right from the start. And I think that really translated through into our experience of running it and the culture that the night had as well, because it was DIY, but it was also fairly sort of professionalised. It was laid back, but it had a, a real emphasis on quality work as well. It was a broad church um, and while we did have, we occasionally we had songwriters, didn't we? Come and sort of do sort of op- open mic um, things, but it, it generally did have that sort of that literary kind of quality to it. Um, it's, it's, I think it's so. About- it, was, it was bringing together those not contradictions, but those sort of pairs of things that I think gave it its its uniqueness, probably, and, and helped um, let us go with it and run with it for so long. Yeah, it's, it's about being being open to uh, to ideas from people other than if you because I mean we were we have a team of people but it could quite easy, you could be listening to this podcast you may have had uh, you know a great idea for a spoken word night but it might be just you and that's fine you can set up a spoken word night on your own all you need to do is go to your local sort of drinking hall or um, yeah. or uh, events type centre and, uh, and and book a room. Um, but you need to, you need to be able to be open to not the, the ideas from people that are actually coming to the event itself. You know, let them shape the event rather than it being you you yourself that dictates what happens. Definitely, but then I also think you have you should have a vision for your night <clears throat> because spoken word nights can be so many things to so many different people. You should have a vision and sort of hold on to that vision, and that will guide you through because you sort of need that to kind of give your night character and sort of a, a bedrock really to operate on and for us as I said it was that idea of it being a broad church that anyone could read anything Yeah, and that's what we sort of stuck to um, throughout. Now there was something else I wanted to say but damn it it's gone what was I going to it was on the subject of I suppose it was of doing it doing it yourself that whole how do you do it and I think um, as Ian's just said Finding a venue that you like is a start with the room above it. You know, pubs and, and bars do all sorts of things that you might not totally be aware of with kind of additional space that they might have locked away. So that's the first thing. Find somewhere that you want to hold it. You know, often you can get, you can strike a deal with the bar, which means that there might not even be any room hire. There might be a small fee for room hire. But actually, if you say, well, I think I can get 50 people through the door, well, then because of the sort of additional um, income that they'll get from the bar, then they might be prepared to do it on that basis. So, you know, there's different ways you negotiate the actual sort of room and venue um, hire itself. And then I think, as you said, Ian, marketing is another important area. The website, the Words Aloud website, yeah. which is still up there at wordsaloud.org, I think. That's right. Um, that was a key tool, I think, in keeping the building our community of writers and performers and keeping that alive. Because what we did, by no means, you don't have to do this, of course, but what we did, because we sort of had these skills, was to sort of put people's work up on the website after the night if they wanted it up there and also put audio and sometimes video of performances up there and photographs. Yeah, I mean, and we're talking, we're not just, the people that came to our to, to Words Aloud, it wasn't, there were plenty of seasoned writers, but a lot of, yeah. time, a lot of people that came were reading for the first time. Mm. So imagine that someone comes to your spoken word night, they've never performed before, but they've been writing sort of in their bedroom for, for you know, all their life or, or however long. Um, and they pluck up the courage, they're as nervous as anything, they get up on stage, they yeah. perform their work, they get a good reaction, and then 
they can send you their work and lo and behold it's on their website I mean it's, it's publishing isn't it it's, it is, it is. it's, it's effect, you're effectively yeah. publish, publishing someone work for them it's, it's obviously they're not going to get a, a book deal from your website but you're, you're showcasing their work for them you're providing a service I just wanted to just finally just touch on, on funding because I'm going to be talking to uh, Donna Sorensen Donna from the Irish Writers Centre about funding um, in part two of this podcast and of course uh her problems are on a much greater scale, but there is, uh, when you're setting up your own spoke at Word Night, there is the element of funding. Who, you know, the, you just talked about um, going to um, a venue and getting the room upstairs or something like that, and there might be a small fee. Um, so, how can how can how can our listeners, anyone who wants to set up a, a spoke at Word Night, find the money to do it? Do you think it could, do you think it's it's possible on a very small budget? Yeah, I do think it's. I mean, ultimately, as you know, we did it on a very small budget. Um, was it? We had a, it was a pound donation system, wasn't it? If I remember right, um, or was it, it was, or only it, on a couple of occasions? I can't remember. It was only a pound donations uh, when we changed changed venues. We changed ah, venues a year it. in. Yeah. So for, for the for the majority of the time, it was actually free. Yeah. I forgot, I knew there was something about a pound donation. That was when we, as you said, changed venues halfway through, moved to a new venue where... That's right. But, we, I mean, we just, we, we clubbed together, didn't we? We Cause, did. Because there was a few of us. We yeah. were just, initially, we were just like, oh, someone needs to buy, like, 100 pieces of card from, yeah. from the local stationery shop. Yeah. So someone would just do it, and then on the night, you'd sort of pay each other back in drinks. Yeah. But one of the things we we did uh, uh, after we sort of realised that it was a bit of a goer was speak to the guy who was running the the bar and sort of said, you know, can we, we we're bringing quite a lot of people into yeah. your into your uh, your uh, venue? Is there anything that you know you can do to help us out? So he started giving us. We got sort of so many free bottles of beer, and you know we were happy enough with that, weren't we? We were, and some food as well, and a bit of tucker as well. So you, and that's before the the place ended up on Gordon Ramsay, of course. Of course, uh, yeah, that's another. Which we whole, won't say too much about. No, it's a whole other story. It is. Um, but you can, of course, get people to pay on the door. That's one way of funding your night. You can ask for sponsorship, so you can contact local companies and say, yeah. uh, especially relevant ones, and say, uh, "I'm running this night. I get this many people coming every night. Your name will be above the door, or I'll mention you at yeah. the start. It'll be on the website. Um, could you give us a hundred pounds or a hundred dollars or whatever it is to um, to uh, just help me pay my way and that, I think that's probably the yeah but b- both of those ways are kind of really um, doable models I think and especially the um, the donation one that's you know to kind of ask your um, your readers really to sort of make a small donation to cover room hire and whatever your other associated yeah. costs but then the other thing to say is is that I think you can approach someone like the Arts Council in the UK yeah. or the equivalent in the States or whatever country you're based in and ask them for funding, particularly whenever you've been running it for a little while and they've seen that commitment. It, I think it should be quite easy to get some sort of funding. And I'll say one last thing on the subject, if Go that's okay, it. that I forgot. I've just remembered what I wanted to say. We had the three-minute rule at Words Allied, which is quite important one, isn't it? It, it was an important rule. It was it sort of... It, it made the nice, actually... Which I think it, it did. It split us from time to time, but what it is, um, listeners, was that we had a three-minute rule, which was three minutes to read your own work or anyone else's. So you had three minutes on stage to read your piece. Now some people stuck to it, some people really didn't at all, and it didn't really matter. That was my perspective on it. 
But the point of having a rule, a, a sort of time slot, is that it means you've got variety, diversity, lots of multiple voices. Because often at, at other spoken word nights, you might get the, the case where someone reads five poems and that's half an hour gone. And when you've got a room full of lots of people, you want that kind of pace and you want that diversity. So that's just a kind of tip about whether you want to have actually a, a sort of recommended uh, time slot for your for your performers. Absolutely. I would definitely recommend it. I was all for the three-minute rule because, God damn it, you've got to have rules. Okay, that's it. Should we leave it there? So basically what we're saying is go to Spoken Word Nights, perform at them because it will help you improve your writing and it will improve your confidence. And if you want to set up your own, it's possible. Just have a bit of humility, try and form a community, get a website if you can and look into uh, getting sponsorship or getting to people to pay on the door to help them pay for it. Nice summary, Brim. I remembered all that. Okay, that's it. On to part two. So we briefly touched on funding there at the uh, end of part two and um, funding your own spoken word night. Um, but on a completely different scale, um, uh, arts-related uh, organisations um, around the country and around the world are struggling all the time. Um, uh, this year, the Irish Writers' Centre in Dublin has found itself in a, a more than tricky position. It offers events, readings and a national hub for Irish writers, all on a minuscule budget after their most recent application for funding was turned down. So with me to talk about the funding process and how to survive it in the current climate is Donna Sorensen, Communications and Events Coordinator at the Centre. Hello, Donna. Hi there. Hello. So if you could just sort of give us a bit of an intro uh, to what you do before we talk about the funding process, what you do and a bit about the Irish Writers' Centre in general. Okay. Um, the Irish Writers' Centre um, is a fantastic resource that's um, set in kind of the old cultural quarter of Dublin, um, which is quite a ramshackle, rundown area now. Um, but that's really, you know, where um, things in terms of literature in particular um, really, really started in Dublin. There's, you know, a lot of old pubs that were kind of frequented by writers of the last hundred years around there. There's the James Joyce Centre and there is the Dublin Writers Museum next door to us and uh, the Hugh Lane Gallery, which... Uh, amongst other things, has uh, Francis Bacon Studios. So it's this it's really, really vibrant part of Dublin, and we have a big Georgian building. We've been there since 1991, and we're really just uh, a base uh, that promotes Irish writing uh, all over the world and, you know, within Ireland itself, and also Irish writers. So we give um, writers of all stages of, of the kind of, you know, process, you know, whether it's from unpublished to publish we give them platforms to develop their work um to get out to the audience and um and to really kind of bring literature and irish writing to the general public we yeah. have uh launches we have a beautiful big reading room uh, we do creative writing courses we do publishing seminars where we invite you know publishers in um agents and um authors um, and um, it's just a really vibrant hub. Um, so the, the, the point is, it, it, it's quite important, isn't it? It's quite a big thing in in um, in, uh, in Ireland, not just in Dublin. It's actually quite quite a large and important organisation. You know, it's part of the culture of the and the you know the history of the city for the, you know the last twenty odd years. But you've struggled to get funding this year. In fact, you didn't get funding. Uh, could you tell us a bit about uh, why that why why that was and sort of yeah. how you've managed to sort of carry on going regardless? Well, basically, I think, you know, it's, it's it's one of those strange things that now it's only just now because of this whole crisis we've been going through that people have started to realise how important we are. You know, you don't necessarily notice what's going on kind of behind the scenes. Um, but basically, 
a couple of years ago, the centre was being run by a small team of people um, that the Arts Council in Ireland, separate to the Arts Council in the UK, didn't feel were doing a good enough job. And, you know, they specified points specifically that the, the Writer Centre was failing um, to, to meet their standards on. Mm. And um, they cut the funding. So that was basically back in 1998. And rather than close the centre down, um, the, the writer who set the centre up back in 1991, Jack Hart, basically said, OK, last ditch effort, we'll get a voluntary board on, you know, in and we will see if we can struggle through to really turn this place around because it is vital and it's not been run properly, but we can do it and it is necessary. So they drafted in a team of, at the time, it was nine um, full-time volunteers on an internship. And, and when, when was this? Because This was last September. So it was actually in a fairly... Uh... I suppose a state of disrepair isn't quite true, is it? But it was sort of not 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 perhaps uh, managed with the, the the resources it needed to keep going. Is that is that what you mean? No, and that's really that's really you know damaged it, and in that's really what we inherited basically was a system that was kind of functioning to provide creative writing courses and a place for book launches but it was not kind of pushing the boundaries it was not you know seeking new talent it was not you know bringing in a a diverse kind of range of writers and communities to use the center and to really get you know literature out there so um yeah sorry so when 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 did you when you say you you inherited it so when did when did the sort of the new regime for want of a uh, a less dictatorial word uh, when did you take over well basically they phased out the old team over the summer of 2009 and we were brought in um, in September 2009 and this is actually something which we didn't realize at the time but has affected us this year in a big way because um, you know the centre has, has completely changed. It's um, a very vibrant place. You know, we have membership. We have people coming in to use the centre all the time. For example, tonight, Seamus Heaney was in there again. Can't get rid Good of him. And And so, you know, this is something which has happened since last September. And we've got this amazing momentum. But the problem is, is that the application... Well, this year's funding to the Arts Council was put in in August when the old team were just leaving. It was, um, you know, the, basically what was presented to the Arts Council was what the centre was at that time when it was in crisis and in transition. And the new team, we didn't really kind of fully comprehend this. We thought maybe the Arts Council would be looking at what was going on at the time when they made their decision for funding in January of this year. So you have. That didn't happen. Uh, basically, the Arts Council made their decision in January. They looked at the application on paper and they said, no, it's not happening. Even though we are the National Writing Centre, and yes, we were in you know, a bit of a sorry state um, you know, in former years, but right now we really are excelling and succeeding in, in providing you know, what we are setting out to provide. So and it, Ireland does need us. So it, sound, it sounds like you've got a good chance of getting funding next time. By the, does that would that be next time? Absolutely. But so that means we've got to hang on by the skin of our teeth for another year, and we're basically covering our overheads with creative writing courses, where we, you know, we're not just providing an income to writers uh, because we get them in to facilitate creative writing courses for the general public, you know, but we're also managing to cover our overheads in that way. But we really are expanding in so many other areas too, you know, as a place for launches. We have um, literary groups which meet, writing groups meet with us, and they they you know develop their writing independently so the, the real problem is the fact that it has to be voluntary staff at the moment because we just can't pay them yeah. and um and so basically we're looking at other things government schemes for example bringing trainees in where the government would fund them to do work experience with us right. uh, that's another option but you know there's an absolutely fantastic chance that we will get the funding next january 
um, and basically all the writers that you know that really matter in Ireland have really rallied behind us because you know as I said since the coal crisis everyone's kind of taken a step back and said okay hang on we do actually really need this place and we can't let it go and, and is this something that's quite um something that's quite common across uh, you know other writing centers across the uk and I, I guess even further afield as a lot of people listen to this will be probably from the us but is, you know is this sort of is the uh, the economic climate climate as opposed to climate is that sort of um it's obviously having a having a sort of an effect on the publishing industry you know, in in general but yeah, uh, places like yours don't really get thought about in the same way i mean i wouldn't have you know, I would just assume that you would get funding, especially if you're a national centre. Is it is it yeah. quite common that this, uh, you know, places like uh, organisations like yours are being affected? Well, absolutely. I mean, everywhere is affected, and you know, most organisations have obviously received a big cut in their funding this year. The the problem is getting back into being funded once you've you know had your funding cut. You know, turning up basically as a new organisation, even though you're not a new organisation. You know, that's extremely difficult in uh, in the present climate. But you know, it's an amazing statistic. Apparently, for the Arts Council of Ireland, the Arts Council's budget, and they do have a sizable budget. You know, which they are spreading amongst many, many good and fantastic organizations you know there are writing centers in other parts of ireland which get funding there are poetry organizations and you know small publishing houses yeah but apparently only around about four percent of the arts council's budget in ireland goes to literature right uh, that's quite shocking when you consider that literature is actually probably ireland's national art form um, and it has been historically for you know at least the last hundred years that's pretty amazing um, it is amazing, you know, the tourists draw to Ireland for their literature. You know, this it's it's not just because of Ireland historically its strength in literature. It's also because of its strength now. I mean, Ireland is set to be, uh, Dublin, sorry, is set to become a UNESCO um, city of literature. Right. And imagine them going into that situation without a national writing centre. Yeah. Is quite bizarre. So, yes, we shall just have to uh, hang on in there and uh, yeah, and keep on doing what we're doing, which is really providing fantastic place to you know come and experience literature well it sounds like uh, it sounds like you're doing a pretty good job and it sounds like what it needs is a bit of uh, innovation and people willing to uh, uh, give up their time to uh, get stuck in really doesn't it that's what it's all about yeah I think we're rocking well I, well you would say that but even so <laughs> I'm sure you are rocking <laughs> all right well thanks very much for uh, for talking to us and um, and maybe we'll speak to you soon when you get your funding next year yes fingers crossed thanks very much Ian. no worries bye bye Part three of the Right for Life podcast is called In the News, and it's uh, where we take a blog post or more. In this case, it's just one blog post this week, um, and we talk about it. So what I've got here is seven psychological tips for getting in the writing zone, which is by Peter Shallard of petershallard.com. And uh, Peter calls himself the shrink for entrepreneurs. This is um, a, a new blog for me, but I saw this article and I thought we should talk about it. So he's got seven tips for psyching yourself up to, uh, to get writing. And I thought we would very quickly go through them and say whether we do or do not agree with those. So mm -hmm. first one is find your ritual. Manuela. Yeah. Uh fidgeting and that comes in many forms I, I fidget I have to sort of fidget when I when I write so I think that's that's probably my ritual I, I kind of um and I don't really have a ritual actually I think because of working full-time as, as, as we discussed last week I kind of have ended up having to write when I can so it's very rare that I get into any sort of regular routine so 
He's probably right, but I don't do it. <laughs> okay, number two. Uh, have a clear outcome, so know what you're going to get out of your writing sesh. No, that's really boring. Sorry. I don't, I don't like setting outcomes in general, so not for me, that one. Well, I enjoy setting outcomes, and I delight in always missing them. So, <laughs> next one. Find a creative environment. Um... I think you've just got to go with what you've got. I mean, I'd like to say that I've sort of been uh, doing my summer house project for a year now and I'm carefully selecting the vintage collectibles that are going to adorn its walls and uh, and floors, but just ain't true. I think, you you know, you've got to just go with, with what you've got, really, unless you've got the luxury of having another space to choose from. Exactly. I think we all see these, these sort of blog posts where we say 20 of the most beautiful writing spaces in the world and it's, you know, it's got Martin Amis and Margaret Atwood and you go, yeah, they can afford a nice blooming writing space. Mind you, the chap does say you want to get get good writing done at a nightclub, imagine your mental state. I quite like the idea of writing in a nightclub, well, sitting quietly in a corner. There's been some desperately unhappy nights in nightclubs in the past where a bit of writing would have probably have soothed my uh, mental state. Number four, <laughs> get inspired by awesomeness. Well, I don't... F- yes, always read good writing. Brilliant to give you a good buzz, but... Um, I don't think I've ever, when I've been really stuck, gone and sort of like, you know, selected James Joyce on the, on the, from the bookshelf or Angela Carter. I, do, I might do that the rest of the time, but I've never done it directly because I've not been inspired. I've probably just cried instead. I'm not interested in reading other... In fact, I, I specifically uh, don't read other people's... I don't, I don't read fiction when I know that I'm going to be writing for any significant period of time because I just end up thinking that they're either better than me or uh, that uh, I just... I'll end up sort of writing uh, with sort of little flicks of their style for some mm. reason. So I just try and avoid it. Yeah. Decide that I'm awesome enough as it is myself. Good advice. <laughs> Good advice. Clear your head. That was one of the questions, not an order. <laughs> it wasn't a Beastie Boys song or something. Um... <clears throat> That's just just generally good advice, isn't it, to clear your head? Well, it is. is. There's lots of ways you can do it. Go outside for, you know, five minutes um, or do something else for five minutes. I think the danger is is that it's being focused there and actually suddenly five minutes on Twitter becomes half an hour. That's true. And also, if I think, I'll just clear my head for ten minutes, then if I come back and I still can't do whatever I'm trying to do, I go, do you know what? I think I might need to clear my head again for another five minutes. (laughs) I think it's just good advice. (laughs) For the rest of the day. Yeah. It's good advice to to try and be in a decent sort of state of mind before you... to try and do something fairly relaxing before you start writing. Uh, Write at the right time. Well, when is the right time? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think we are probably... um, Hardwired into kind of writing better at certain times than others, but I think it depends what's going on in your life, what's going on with your sleep pattern, and various things to be able again. If you're working part time, full time, whatever, you've only got certain times that you can write at. I think. Yeah, that's true. I prefer to uh, write very late at night, stroke in the early hours of the morning, <laughs> early hours of the morning. But that's often impossible when you're working full time. So, it, yeah, it's good advice, but not always possible. And then finally, create your state. Emotional state of mind. Well, it's a nice idea, but you know, I think you're the best state for writing is probably just living and going through, you know, the ebb and flow and of of day to day life and the annoyances and the delights and everything, and just reflecting that into your into your writing, really. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's kind of uh, ideal advice, but sometimes um, you can be going through terrible things in, in, in your life and still end up writing sort of, you know, really good, good stuff. It can, it can inform it quite a bit. Um, yeah, obviously it's good to be in a, a state of mind that is um, is, a, is, a, is a sort of a, a good writing state of mind, sort of, you know, like he says, clear head, that kind of thing. But, you know, you just sometimes you just have to make do. I think that's what Write For Your Life is. A lot of my posts have been about that, is sometimes you just have to make do with what you've got and make the best of it. Make do and mend. Absolutely. All right, well, we'll leave that there. Thank you very much to uh, to uh, Peter Shallard. You can visit, uh, you can read that uh, blog post at petershallard.com. And... Uh, I think that's it for the uh, for this episode. Thanks very much for joining me again, Manuela. Thank you, Ian. And uh, we'll see you, stroke, hear you, in fact, mainly hear you next time. <laughs>